Accessing library computer data. Level 9 authorization required. Command codes verified. Welcome to Moms Going Boldly, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Moms Going Boldly is two moms who love Star Trek and who also happen to have children on the autism spectrum. We talk about the new Star Trek Discovery TV series, as well as any autism issues we see along the way. I am your host, Elizabeth, and with me is my co-host, Vicki. Hi, I'm Vicki. We are Moms Going Boldly. And welcome back to Moms Going Boldly, where today we're talking about Star Trek Discovery, Season 4, Episode 10, The Galactic Barrier. Did you like this one, Vicki? I did like this one. I really like this one. I really like this one, too. This was Star Trek at its best. Yeah, it was great, I have to say, yes. It really was. And you know what? They had me at the Galactic Barrier, because who could not love that? And kind of coincidentally, sadly, coincidentally, as I was getting ready to watch this, and I said to my spouse, I wonder who's going to get telepathic powers and telekinetic powers. Of course, thinking about the original season episode, Where No Man Has Gone Before, where the Enterprise crosses the galactic barrier. Remember that one? Yes. Was it the first episode? It may very well have been the first episode of Star Trek. It might have been. With uh, the William Shatner version, not the Jeffrey Hunter version. Anyway, one of the actors in that episode was Sally Kellerman, right, right. who played uh, Dr. Elizabeth Daner. And very sadly, coincidentally, she passed away yesterday. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Oh. Yep. And she was 84 years old. And after I had been thinking about her and thinking about that episode, I happened to look at the news and there was the notice that she passed wow. away. No, I yeah. didn't even see that. And the funny thing is, is that in the article that I read, the second paragraph, after the first paragraph talked about her being the original Hot Lives Houlihan in the MASH movie, right. not MASH television series, right. the next paragraph was mm-hmm. discussing her role as Elizabeth Daner in the Star Trek episode, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, it's funny because we talked about that episode a couple of episodes ago. Yeah. And you couldn't remember his best friend's name, Gary. Right. But I <laughs> <He> still couldn't. <laughs> yeah. But I, I did remember Sally Kellerman because I think I said it in the episode. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even hear that. I, it's weird yeah. that I missed that because I just scrolled a lot a couple minutes ago and I didn't see anything. Yep. So just a sad coincidence that we should have a reference to the Galactic Barrier on the same day that a person who was in the original Galactic Barriers episode had passed away. Yeah. Anyway, so, okay. There's a lot to unpack in this episode, so mm-hmm. we should probably just get going here. So we open up the episode. We have a little bit of a last time on Star Trek or previously yeah. on Star Trek thing. And then we open up at a conference table with what looks like a old-fashioned Starfleet insignia from the Star Trek episodes that, you know, we have loved Next Generation and... Deep Space Nine. Of course, this is 900 plus years in the future. So what is that doing there? Then we kind of pan towards Dr. Kovic and some other people sitting around the table. And we realize there's a whole bunch of different pieces of equipment on the table that are all related to translation, including like one of the very, very earliest communicators that could have been used in that original episode of Star Trek in 1966. Did you see that one? Yeah, I didn't really even notice it, no. Anyways, we're joining in the middle of a conversation about how they are going to communicate with Species 10C on a first contact mission. That first contact mission has been prioritized and sped up because Book and Tarka, Tarka, right? Mm -hmm. I dislike him so much, I can't even remember his name. (laughs) 
Tark had destroyed the dark matter anomaly, the DMA, which then was replaced by another dark matter anomaly. And they learned that its energy source was in the originating galaxy, not in our galaxy. So they couldn't even stop it because it would just reformed. More powerful. Yeah. So this first contact mission is now like really urgent. They have to get there before this DMA destroys our galaxy. Mm -hmm. There's this wonderful wonderful moment where the doctor whose name I can't remember but he's going to be joining them on the trip you know Um, I didn't write it down I meant to and I didn't because I knew I wouldn't remember I know who you mean yeah anyway (laughs) he's a linguist he's a you know astrobiologist he's somebody who's perfect for taking along with them on this first contact mission and he points out that these communicators are all there for confirmation bias which I thought was like oh my gosh so brilliant what he said was which is kind of similar to what you and I have discussed previously was that this works well with species that we gravitate towards because they speak verbally and they communicate verbally and they have similar ways of communicating and functioning in the universe as we do which i thought was brilliant and it kind of went back to what you and i talked about when admiral vance assumed that oh my gosh if the mining equipment is big what can their weapons be like well that assumes that they're going to make weapons that's kind of a confirmation bias thing that's what we would do so therefore that's what they must be doing when that's not actually the case or may not be the case so anyway i just i loved that moment then Burnham and Vance and President really get called out by Stamets, who has now determined that not only did the DMA return exactly in the same place it was before, but now it's moving faster. Right. It's more powerful and moving faster. Yeah. It's more powerful and it's moving faster. And I actually made a note here that the species 10C must really need this boronite. Yeah. It must be urgent for them that they need it so badly that they're going to make this go even faster so that they don't lose another mining equipment before they lose their opportunity to gain what they need. So that suggests that there is A, a problem, and B, a point of negotiation yes. when they meet species 10C, which I'm surprised they didn't mention. All, all they did was use it to sort of focus on the urgency. We've got to go now. Well, maybe they didn't have that thought. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've been known to read things into. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> Anyway, okay, I think his name is Hirai. Anyway, so they decide they're going to leave, like, within two hours. They've right. got to go. They're going to go, even though some of the diplomatic representatives from the Federation who want to go on this first contact mission haven't even arrived yet to join them on Discovery. They're going to leave without them, including the uh, representative from Navarre, who I at first thought was going to be Michael's mom. Yeah, so did I. And I thought, because of the way that President Rillick said it to Michael, and, you know, Michael said, we need to leave in two hours, and we need to give my crew a chance to say their goodbyes and president really says not all the diplomats are here including the diplomat from navarre the way she looked at her and the way she said it was like you're not going to get a chance to say goodbye to your mom but I, then we learned later that that wasn't the case right i guess maybe she was just emphasizing that because of burnham's strong connection to navarre as the planet on which she grew up because she does mention that later that you know she has a connection to earth and navarre oh i should add before we left the meeting dr kovich said something very interesting he said that as much as he would like to go along on this first contact mission, he can't go because he has more urgent matters to attend to. Yes. And I'm like, what is that? Well, but then he said, you know, when the representative from Earth said, what could be more urgent than this? He said, that's how I'd like to keep it. I'd like to keep it that way. So I took it as he is trying to put out fires from what's happened so that they can just concentrate on contacting species 10C and not have to deal with the likes of you know like they had to deal with Book and Tarka. Right and maybe that's the case that's very logical 
but I'm secretly hoping there's like like something else going on. <laughs> oh, okay. I just took it that he's there to put out fires in case, you know, anybody else decides to go rogue or whatever's going on. Yeah. So that, you know, they could keep their focus on this mission and nothing else. I'm secretly hoping it's the mirror universe is figuring out a way to come back. <laughs> okay. I didn't even think of that. Because he's like an expert on it. So yeah, True. I'm, I'm going to have my little fantasies about what that meant. <laughs> Though your explanation seems much more logical. <laughs> okay, anyway, so they're getting ready to go. Be, you know, So they're pulling all the, the things together that they need to do in order to go. And when Burnham leaves Admiral Vance and President Rillick to go prepare her ship to leave in two hours, President Rillick declares that she's going to go too. Right. And I knew she was going to do that. Did you know she was going to do that? I Yes. Well, Vance was talking and they showed her in the background. That's when I realized absolutely yeah. she was going to do that. And I'm, As soon as he, he said, it's a hell of a thing. And as soon as she says it is, I'm like, oh, she's going. Yep. And I <laughs> still can't determine whether this is all politics for her. I understand, like she said, she was a diplomat for 20 years and they need her. I can't shake the fact that there's politics involved. And I agree. And I actually believe, I think you're correct. Because later in this episode, we have this moment of meeting of the minds between Rillick and Burnham that I think Rillick transcends evaluating everything through the lens of politics Mm. to a broader evaluation, a more global evaluation. So I think you're correct. I think that at this moment, it is a political decision. She says she has the skills because of her 20 years as a diplomat and the fact that she represents the Federation, that she thinks she needs to be there in order to politically lead this first contact, this incredibly fraught first contact. So I think you're correct. And then I think at the end, she actually has her eyes open that her responsibilities are much huger than just politics. That's such a phrase, much huger. Did I just make that up? (laughs) I make up words all the time. Yeah, and even later when she talks about how her family's on Earth, you could almost think that, okay, maybe it's not politics, but I still think it is. And I think it was. I think it was right up until almost the last scene. Yeah. And she has this epiphany with Michael Burnham. Right. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. Right. Anyway, so we also have this incredibly charmingly awkward scene with Saru and President Tarina of Navarre, where in anticipation that he's leaving and he might not come back and he might not see her again, kind of sort of tells her that he kind of sort of has feelings for her. Yeah. And then her assistant appears at that very moment before she gets a chance to respond and she has to leave and says, excuse me, leaving poor Sir standing there like a high school, high schooler <laughs> in the hallway. <laughs> oh, my God, I just embarrassed myself. I will never, ever be able to function as a human being ever again. Right. And her assistant is probably telling her that their representative still hasn't arrived and she was going to have to go. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, but poor Saru, you see it from his perspective and, you know, we can all relate. We We have all been there. We have all said the thing that, you know, went over like a lead balloon to someone that is important to us and then just really wish that the earth would swallow us up. Yes, yes. Anyway, so fortunately, though, Dr. Culver shows up because Saru's job is to go inform all of the diplomatic representatives that they're, that they're leaving. He's updating them all. And I think Dr. Culver shows up and sort of tells him, oh, what you're experiencing is perfectly normal. We've all done it. It's all right. Right. And then they go off to relay their communication to the other diplomats. So that's a cute little moment yeah. in an otherwise sort of tense episode. Yeah. Can we? And I've said this before because they've done this before. 
they devoted a whole scene to, I think it was Saru and Bryce talking about how Bryce wasn't coming with them because he was working with Kovich. Yes. They've done this before. Yes. And I mentioned it before because I feel like it's supposed to mean something. Earlier, and it might have even been season three, this Lieutenant Christopher came to replace Bryce. That's how they got him because Bryce was leaving for six weeks. But they always feel the need to announce it. And I don't know if they think we're going to miss him if we don't see him every week. But I think if we didn't see him every week, we just think he was working somewhere else on the ship. Yeah. I just feel like they're doing that for a reason. And, and I think it's kind of a clunky attempt at trying to make a pseudo ensemble setup. So let's talk about, for example, Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager. All three of those series really had an ensemble framework for their storytelling so that we actually spent time. We spent most of the time with the captain, but we frequently spent an entire episode with some other important bridge character. Yeah. And so that we actually got character development. We got an understanding of their perspective. We, you know, we know what's going on with them. Discovery doesn't do that. It's all Michael all the time. True. Occasionally we'll get a little Saru. Occasionally we'll get a little bit of um, the Emperor. Giorgio. Giorgio. But we don't actually ever get to spend any time. Oh, we had a little Tilly, too. Till Tilly went away. Yeah. But we never actually got to spend any time with the rest of the bridge group. We never have an episode that's completely from their perspective. Well, true. And I was going to say a couple of weeks ago, I mean, all they need to do really is take a shot of Detmer and Owo looking at each other and just insert it in every episode. Because a couple of episodes, they did that so many times that it was to the point of ridiculous. Everything that happens, they stop and they stare at each other. It actually reminds me of when Data and Jordy used to do that. D- Data and Wesley used to do that, they, always looking at each other. Yes, they did, but this seems more drawn out. Yeah. More well, and, more specific, more, I don't know. But Yeah, it, it's and only- I think there's a couple of things going on there. One, if you think about when Data and Wesley used to do that, it was in the context of a smaller bridge where you could see the rest of the bridge officers, and it would take place like at the same time as Riker or Picard reacting to something. And then they would look at each other. And you would still have the focus on Riker and Picard. You'd still see the reaction. And then it would be like another layer of their reaction at the same time, as opposed to just a single shot only on them to give that reaction layer. That's kind of the way it feels to me. So you're kind of losing the, it's all happening at the same time feeling. Maybe that's it. Because I think it was last week. It kind of got, even though I liked the episode, it kind of got a little like, okay, can we stop doing this? Yeah. You know, like Tasha Yar used to say, they really didn't need her there. They just could shoot her feet under the desk and insert it in during the episode. And that's what I felt like. They just need to shoot the scene and just insert it where they want. I hear you. But I also think that they're trying to do something different and not really doing it well. I no. think it feels clunky. Yes. Which yes. is why I tend to ignore those scenes. They're not meaningful to me, and they don't move the story forward. No, and that's why I'm saying with Bryce, why do they have to announce he's leaving? The last time they said he was leaving for six weeks, and I don't think he actually was not in any of the episodes. I started to think this was going to mean something later on, and then they did it again. And there's another scene that's pretty clunky later on. (laughs) (laughs) Is it the Adira scene? No, that one I could live with. No, it was um, what they're going to do when they go to Earth. Oh, actually, I really like that. Oh, no, no, no. I was like, really? (laughs) Really? If they did that when Burnham wasn't trying to prove to the president that it's important to tell them, if they did that, maybe I I would get over it. But it was just so, I don't know the word I want. Heavy-handed? It was heavy-handed. It was clunky. 
it was just so obvious. Yes, and I agree. As a as a writing tool, as a plot tool, it was obvious. As a moment unto itself, I actually really liked it because it made a lot of sense. These guys were in so much danger on such an important mission, a mission that was crucial to their entire galaxy, and they needed to find a way to distract themselves from their impending demise. In a vacuum, no pun intended, I like that scene <laughs> absolutely. a lot. But you're absolutely correct. As a plot device, it was very heavy-handed. Right, and like I just said, if that was in another scene or in another episode where they could still be in danger, but not trying to make a point to the president, a point that they don't know they're trying to make, right? I would have liked it. But it was yeah. just so contrived. Agreed. We're going to pause right here for a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, Doug Gramley here from Yeah, That Can't Be Good. Doug here from the 13th Warehouse. If you are a fan of Eureka, please join Kim, Vicky, Skip, and myself over at Yeah, That Can't Be Good for an episode-by-episode podcast of all things Eureka at EurekaRewatch.com. If you're a fan of Warehouse 13, please join Kim and Vicky over at the 13th Warehouse at the13thwarehouse.com. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us on Twitter at Eureka Warehouse. And we're back. We actually now move on to a scene with Booker and Tarka. Mm-hmm. I dislike this man so much. <laughs> I find it hard to focus when I'm watching him. I just want to walk away. <laughs> Book is furious with Tarka for destroying the DMA and acting without his approval and acting unilaterally and being a jerk. Tarka doesn't care. Book's going to kick him off his ship and he's going to settle him on a planet that's primitive but not too primitive. Right, but what does Tarka say? Because of him, we now know that the power source isn't in the middle of the DMA. So even though he's done all of this, He's still giving himself props. Right, and exactly. Still- and, and makes it sound like that's the most important thing. Yeah. And, and somehow, Booker, who's an incredibly smart man, follows along with this, even <laughs> though it doesn't actually make sense. I know. But I found this out. <laughs> and the only thing that he did... <laughs> like, yeah. And the only thing that he did, actually, that I thought was remotely compelling for Book is that he pointed out to Book that he wasn't going to be able to use the spore drive to get out of the galaxy and across the galactic barrier. Right. To which I respond, so what? So maybe Book figures out a way to rejoin Discovery, and Book doesn't need to cross the galactic barrier. Book wanted to stop the DMA. He did, and it blew up in his face, literally. Right, so he should be done right now. He (laughs) should be done. Right. And nothing Tarka says should be convincing him. that It did not make sense to me at all. The only thing I think maybe is that he did say that Discovery would have to do the same thing that he was recommending that they do with this programmable antimatter to get through the negative energies of the galactic barrier. But were they going to go help Discovery get through the galactic barrier? That wasn't what was proposed. No. So I didn't get it. I didn't understand why Book was going along with this. I don't understand Book's motivation here. I don't understand how Tarka talked him into it. It didn't make any sense to me. Now, the scene that you were talking about with Bryce, that happens next. And the only thing I can think of is that it just sort of supports the, what the Kovich thing. Because he's working with Kovich. It's a project big enough where he's, he's taking a crew member off Discovery, a crew member that comes from the past, mm-hmm. to go work with him. I don't know what else is Bryce's qualifications are that would make him valuable to the project with Kovic. I'm not saying there aren't any. I just don't know what they are. Right. That's why I'm saying. I don't know if these are supposed to mean something somewhere farther down the line. Then we have the scene with... Adira, that I didn't really care for. 
it felt contrived to me where Burnham is talking to Adira about coming back from Trill and asks about Gray and how's Gray doing and they tell Burnham that Gray's doing fine and then Stamet starts to highly praise Adira <laughs> for all of the work that they're doing on the ship. Yeah, my kid is an honor student. A bumper sticker. Yeah, <laughs> but it also sort of sounded like they needed the praise. Like somehow Stamets thought that they required some kind of boosting, like they were insecure about it or something. Well, historically, Adira has been insecure, so maybe that's what he was thinking. And of course, you know my response to that. Where is tall? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Now, it's been a while, and that's probably changed. Although Stamets doesn't seem to (laughs) grasp that. Or maybe he was thinking they were missing Gray so much that they needed the boost to help them focus on... I don't know. He did say that. He thought they were struggling since Gray had gone. They weren't, apparently. All right, so then we have a scene with Burnham and Rillick where Burnham is, like, laying out the groundwork for how this is going to go. Sort of like, I command the ship, you're in charge of the delegates. (laughs) There's no crossover here, got it? So I thought it was an unnecessary scene because that communication had already taken place earlier. But, okay, maybe just to remind us. And then they shift away and... Admiral Vance watches them out the window and wishes them Godspeed, which was a nice, I think, a nice moment. Kind of, again, reemphasizing the importance of this mission. They arrive at the Galactic Barrier, and they realize that they're not going to be able to get through it very easily because, just as Tarka had said, their shields are not going to be able to withstand the negative energies. So they found these little bubbles, and they're going to float through the barrier on these bubbles. Now, this is a moment where if you've seen the original series and you're kind of going, hmm, well, that's not what happened the first time. I was lying in bed last night thinking, why is the barrier different here than it was in the original series, besides the fact that they have to write the story and they have new special effects opportunities. Right. And I decided that it's because it's a different part of the galaxy. And that could be. (laughs) I decided (laughs) that one side of the galaxy where they tried to go through the barrier was just the weird band of cloud things. And on the other side of the galaxy, when they tried to break through the barrier, it's this bubble thing with the negative energy. So that worked for me. I was willing to go with that. And then, so they get in a bubble, but the bubble freezes. So they have to try to figure out how to get through the barrier because they don't have enough time. Their shields are going to collapse. Negative energies are going to destroy them. And there's only a certain kind of bubble they can use. And the other kind of bubbles aren't good enough. It's very complicated, but I liked it. I thought it was good. And I certainly allowed for a great deal of tension Mm -hmm. and a time element that increased the urgency. The other thing that happened was, as you and I kind of briefly touched on earlier, is that just before they entered the galactic barrier, they received a coded communication from Admiral Vance. And so they got Zora, their AI computer, to decode it. And it was for Relics and Burnham's eyes only. And it was another time crunch element has been added to the story. And that is that the DMA shifted. And where it's landed in the Alpha Quadrant puts it in striking range of Vulcan, Navarre, and Earth. And they have 71 hours before the DMA eats Earth and Navarre. And you know what? I just had this vision in my head of the Doomsday Machine from the original series. Remember that one? That one ate planets too. Yeah, I guess you could compare it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a mining device. It was a a planet-destroying device from a war. But I I remember now that it ate planets too. And that was part of its energy. That's how it kept itself going. Right. Interesting. Anyway, so, sorry. Little frolic and detour there. (laughs) The DMA is going to eat earth and navarre in 71 hours so they have 71 hours to solve this problem which is not very much time 
which then makes their being stuck in the galactic barrier in an unmoving bubble even worse. They've got to move. So they sort of dance between bubbles, moving from one bubble to the next bubble, which every time they leave a bubble and they enter the wrong kind of bubble to get to the right kind of bubble, it chews down on their shields. And this leads to the moment that you were talking about. When they got the message, Burnham and Rillick disagreed on whether to communicate this to the crew or not. Rillick thought it was a bad idea. She thought this was going to be stressful for them. And Burnham was like, no, no, they need to know what they're fighting for. They need to know what the stakes are. And they need to know exactly what the stakes are because, you know, that's how they function the best. They're professionals. They're not going to freak out. And so there was this disagreement. And I love what Burnham says to her. Let me know where you land essentially giving Rillick all the information she needs to help her make a decision from Burham's perspective and then saying the choice is yours. So let me know where you land. And I thought that was really great because it showed that Burnham was trusting Rillick to make a good decision. I really liked that. Anyway, and then comes the scene that you were talking about. You know, there's only like four minutes of shields left and they are trying to get to the right bubble that'll take them through the barrier. And they start talking about all the places on their home planets, Earth mostly, that they're going to visit, that they love to visit, that brings them pleasure, brings them joy. And it's a very upbeat moment, again, in a vacuum, a great way for a professional team to help distract themselves and remind themselves, distract themselves from the danger and remind themselves why they're doing this. Right. Yeah, but you're right. After the conversation about we have to tell them they have a vested interest in Earth too, it is a heavy-handed plot device, I agree. Yeah. So meanwhile, back with Book and Tarka, they're going to someplace to get antimatter, programmable antimatter. And they realized it was a Emerald Chain work camp. And this is where Tarka had been held with his friend. And then we actually get, through a variety of different flashbacks, the story of Tarka and his friend and their developing friendship. And they're working together to try to get to this new universe, which they called home, as an escape from this Emerald Chain work camp. So I got to ask you, what did you think of this backstory? for Tarka. What did I think? This is kind of what I thought. Yes, it was. It was exactly what you thought. Yeah. Again, he keeps looking for clues that Oros... Oros, yeah. ...made it to this Kalis. But, you know, chances are Oros is dead. That would be my assumption. But I still think he just can't bring himself to admit that, and he wants to believe that he made it. Yeah. I really had mixed feelings about this backstory, because while it's a good backstory, and it's very... Believable. I think it makes sense as far as the development of Tarka's character. I still think he's a jerk. (laughs) I don't think this excuses any of his behavior thus far. No, no, no. I understand. You can feel compassion for him to a point. The point being, he's possibly caused a war. I could feel compassion for him, but not compassionate enough to say it's okay to all this stuff that he did. And sometimes when you get someone's backstory, it suddenly makes their actions, I don't know, not def- not necessarily defensible, but you certainly get a better understanding you, of them and you can empathize. Yes. I can't. I still, I still don't feel like yes. this backstory justifies anything he's done. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't say that I condone anything that he's done because I don't. It was nice to see the backstory. And it's funny because when Oros started speaking, I thought it was Gray playing Oros. Oh, did you? Did you actually look up the I, actor? I didn't. It took a while because IMDb still doesn't have all the actors for this episode. But I don't remember people's names. I don't remember planets. I don't remember aliens. But I can recognize a voice. And I knew this voice sounded familiar. Later on, it didn't sound like him. But first, I thought it was Gray playing this character. And then the more he talked, I still knew I recognized this voice. And the actor is... 
I'm probably going to destroy this name, Osric Chow, and he played Kevin Tran in Supernatural, the series Supernatural. Ah, okay. So you knew, you know this character. Yeah. You know this actor. Cool. Very cool. Well, I like the character. I did too, yeah. I enjoyed the character. I enjoyed the scenes, learning about the character. Do we know what species that was? I don't think they ever told Uh us. I didn't recognize the species. And they never told us, I don't think. It looks a little bit like, trying to think of whether we've seen a species that looks similar. Because, of course, 900 years in the future, they may have evolved their appearance a bit. I know we've seen something similar, some species similar. coming to me anyway okay um so we finished the book and tarka storyline with getting the programmable antimatter that he hid in their now destroyed lab and they're going to go get through the barrier right discovery finally gets through the barrier too they find the right little bubble and they get out and there's no stars and there's no mycelium network apparently outside of the galaxy so they have to just travel with basic lithium-powered warp speed. Mm -hmm. And as they get closer to species 10C's protective bubble, what do they call it, a hyperfield? Yeah. They examine it more closely, and they discover there's a planet close by. And so Rillick and Burnham are looking at this planet, and they're going to go there, and they're going to send a team there to investigate first contact, not that because they believe that 10C is there, but because it's so close, it might give them some clues, which should be really interesting. Yeah. Um, and then comes the conversation that I absolutely loved, where Burnham thanks the president. Oh, I should say the president actually, after they got through the, the galactic barrier, the president makes an announcement to the ship congratulating them on getting through the first stage of this incredibly important mission and then telling them about the, the, the danger to Earth and Navarre. And Burnham has her do it. And there's a conversation that Rillick and Burnham have afterwards where Rillick's like, why didn't we do it together? Why, why did you have me do it? And I love what Burnham says here because it is so true of primate species anyway. In times of crisis, people need to know that their leader is not rattled by uncertainty or overwhelming odds and that there is a plan and that they would be okay. Yes. And I don't think really, really recognized that until that moment. No. She was all about the diplomacy, all about the politics, but she had never really given a whole lot of thought to her role as a leader. Right. And that was the moment where she really understood her role as a leader. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah. And I really love that. And then we have one other wonderful scene where we see Saru and President Tarina of Navarre in the Discovery Lounge. It's after the announcement of the danger to Navarre and Earth. And Saru gives her his condolences about this terrible news and, you know, says that he, you know, wants to give her support when she's probably processing, you know, a very scary piece of information about her planet. And she asks him to sit with her because she finds him a comforting presence. Yes. Just love it. (laughs) Just love it. And that's it. Is there anything that I missed? Oh, the three-hour tour. Was that a Gilligan's Island? (laughs) Was that Gilligan's Island reference, or is that something else I missed? That is totally a Gilligan's Island reference. That's what I figured. I was like, okay, that must have come down the years. So, and my question is, was it, you know, anachronistic for us just to enjoy? Or, you know, because Kovitch is such a wonderfully layered character, I'm always wondering, what does he really know? Yeah. Does he really know what that means? 
I think he did it. Because, you know, again, he's like the expert on the mirror universe. And he understands history and he understands he understands a lot i just kind of wonder sometimes i feel like what if covid is like the embodiment of the sphere data the way zora is too like he has some kind of connection to all kinds of information that could be what if he's an android well that's what i thought he like a suit type android at the beginning that's what i thought he was yeah well maybe you're right i never thought he was not an android you know when we first (laughs) met him yeah that was awesome awesome and the other thing i thought at the very beginning before they started talking about translation and confirmation bias was i kind of wondered if maybe they had some of that old style i mean the really early early star trek stuff on the table there because they wanted to maybe have some reference to the previous trip across the barrier i'm sure yeah just because i didn't notice it doesn't mean anybody else didn't well, yeah no i meant like they wanted the first contact team to take it with them oh, oh. that's what i was kind of wondering but then they started talking about translation i was like nope that was a wrong guess okay yeah, yeah i see what you're saying so anyway i think that's it yep so on a scale of one to ten, what would you give this episode? Oh, nine and a half. Oh, yeah, me too. I'm right there. Yeah. Nine. Nine and a half. I agree. Really, really good episode. Lots of layers. I hope that they are able to expand and explore on all of them. Well, unless there's something else, I think we can go ahead and wrap this up. No, I think I'm good. Again, we don't have a title that I'm aware of for the next episode. So we invite our listeners to join us next time when we discuss Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 11, to be announced. Okay, see you then. See you then. You can continue exploring the universe with Moms Going Boldly by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash momsgoingboldly and on Twitter at momsgoingboldly. The music used on Moms Going Boldly is Without Limits by Ross Bugden Music. On Twitter at Ross Bugden, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license, creativecommons.org. You can listen to Moms Going Boldly on Podbean, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Player FM. And we're now also available on Apple Podcasts. Transfer complete.